0: So hello and welcome to the St. Mungo's podcast. This is episode 64 and we are discussing pain management in the emergency department. And our guest speaker today is Sergei Motov, an emergency physician from Brooklyn, New York and someone who is passionate about this topic. Now we'll be hearing his talk on this subject from the Pocketbook of Emergency Medicine and you can watch the lecture in its entirety on our St. Mungo's page in Continuous at www.continuous.com forward slash lp forward slash St. Mungo's. Now, before you hear the lecture, we got Sergey on a call to give us his top five tips for emergency clinicians. I hope you enjoy this episode. So, hello, Sergey, and welcome to the St. Mungo's podcast.
1: Hi again. So honored and super excited to be here today with you.
0: Thank you very much. Well, look, Sergey, if you don't mind, just for our listeners, if you wouldn't mind just giving us a quick background, just to you, uh, where you are in the world and what your professional background is.
1: Sure. So my name is Sergey Motov. I am an emergency medicine attending physician practicing at Maimonides Medical Center, Brooklyn, New York, United States. I've been in emergency medicine for close to 20 years, and I have a tremendous passion and interest for pain management in the emergency department. I do have a bunch of hats, but most recent one, I'm the research director. In addition to being an attending physician, I am the research director for the Department of emergency medicine, so I can pursue my passion.
0: Fantastic. And we're going to play on this episode of Mungo's, your talk that you provided for the continuous pocketbook of emergency medicine on pain management in the emergency department, which is fantastic. But I just wanted to grab you very, very quickly just to get your top five pearls of wisdom for emergency medicine clinicians. Do you mind giving us those?
1: No, absolutely. But before, I just wanted to uh, thank you so much for giving the opportunity to contribute And I'm so happy that you found a talk uh useful and it makes me very, very happy. Thank so you. So let's talk about five tips for EM physicians. So, what I'm gonna do, I have three which are very, very dear to me that describe general approach to emergency medicine. And two, as I mentioned earlier, uh dovetailing my passion for emergency department pain management. First, you have to make a call or decision and not to be afraid of doing so. In my humble opinion, this is one of the most difficult tasks that we, practicing in the clinicians, are faced with. But at the same time, this is one of the most important immersive medicine-defining skill. Just remember, in the heat of the moment, when all eyes are on you, you are the one who must make the call. For better or for worse, you need to be decisive. You cannot not to make a decision. And more importantly too, once you make this very call, you have to stand by it and go with it. Problem number two, do not be afraid to say, I do not know. But, and the sentence with, but I will look up the answer. Never say, I do not know and walk away. There is but, the always but. Remember, honesty and humility are incredibly important for the practice and the immersive physician and for the specialty altogether. You do not know everything. You may not always be right. So admit it. Admit that you do not know. But look the information up. Take everything in stride. It will make you better. It will make you a better person, better clinician, and better colleague. Pearl number three. Be respectful to everyone you work with patients, their families, your fellow consultants, your fellow junior attendings, your fellow junior residents and fellows, your nurses, your physician assistants, your technicians, your consultants, everyone you come in contact while you're on a shift and beyond. It is a basic, it's a basic attribute of being a successful emergency medicine physician, but the one, unfortunately, that gets forgotten all too often, especially in the current climate. Remember, you get what you give. You give respect, you get respect in return. And now, if I may, I'm focusing on very specific traits that I find very, very useful if some of you share my passion for safe and effective and successful ED pain management. First, well, action number four, please engage patients who are presented to the department of mortal pain in shared decision-making about the nature and trajectory of the painful conditions. Engagement by the therapeutics you're about to give it. I mean if you use a medication, be very specific. Tell them what you give by the, by its name. Tell them the route. Tell them the dose. Tell them what are the possible short or long term adverse effects of it. Tell them what the alternatives and at the end, be very specific to tell them importance or necessity to follow your directions and to have a proper follow up. And number five, please. When it comes to management, managing pain in the ED, focus on the patient-specific pain syndrome-targeted approach by understanding patient's painful syndrome, by combining non-pharmacologic and pharmacologic treatment modalities, and more importantly, by knowing dangerous drug-drug combinations and interactions so you can prevent unnecessary morbidity and you can provide the best possible care you can. And these are my dear listeners, my top five pearls for successful emergency medicine physicians.
0: Fantastic pearls! Thank you very much, Sergey. Let's just jump into your talk
1: now. Hi, my name is Sergey Motov. I am an emergency medicine attending physician practicing in Brooklyn, New York. I am thrilled and privileged to be here with you today and to talk briefly about ED pain management. I have no financial disclosure for this particular talk, and let's dive right into it. As we all know, pain is the most common chief complaint that patients come into the emergency rooms. Based on available literature, we're talking about ranges between 40 to 85% of patients have some sort of pain in their presentations. And because of it, it seems so reasonable as a common sense for us, practicing ED physicians across the globe, to be well-versed in our analgesic armamentarium, and to be able to take care care of patients in pain. Our understanding of pain improved significantly over the past 15 years. And because of it, we're really focusing on providing patient-specific pain syndrome approach, not one pill fits all. It has to be tailored or targeted to a particular patient with a particular presentation. And we're doing this by combining non-pharmacological and pharmacological treatment modalities, which in turn can be divided into opioid and non-opioid analgesics. Reasons we can do this, or one reason I should say, once again, our understanding of neurobiology of pain significantly improved, and we're moving away from symptomatic-based approach to mechanistic approach. And I'd like to introduce you to a concept that I titled CERTA, Channels, Enzymes, Receptors, Targeted Analgesia this concept entails or implies that combining analgesics of different classes acting on the different target sites will allow synergy, and that synergy will provide superior analgesia in comparison to single analgesic alone. Furthermore, that synergy of a combination of several analgesics will allow us to drop the dose or reduce the dose of analgesics. And because of it, rate of adverse effect may be reduced, less adverse effect, lesser length of stay or shorter length of stay in the emergency department, which means throughput is better. Everybody wins. Once again, channels, enzymes, receptors, targeted analgesia, examples, combination of opioids and non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications in treating pain of renal colic, or combination opioids and ketamine for treating a variety of acute and acute and chronic painful presentations. Now, before I get into nitty gritty details of analgesics, few basic concepts of pain. What is pain? It's a subjective, it's an intimate experience which has multitude of compounding factors to it and social and behavioral and genetic and what have you. And just to refresh your memory again, simply put together, there are different types of pain that we're dealing in our emergency departments. The most common one we're very familiar with is nociceptive. In part of it is inflammatory pain when there is an actual tissue tissue damage or perceived, and this pain commonly pres- common with combination of acute pain, traumatic, non traumatic, such as mechanical back pain, musculoskeletal injuries, abdominal pain, acute postoperative pain, joint pain, and this goes on and on and on. There's another part of a subset of painful conditions called neuropathic pain, which is primarily caused. By lesions or disease in the nervous system, whether that's a peripheral or central, as well as the ectopic discharges of the injured nerve root, or even nerves themselves. Examples: postoperative neuralgia, trigeminal neuralgia, diabetic neuropathy, uh, HIV-related neuropathies, and the list goes on and on. And lastly, there's a mixed type of pain, which causes combination. And a classic example that we deal in the emergency department very frequently is a pain of sickle cell origin, occlusive crisis has both actually trifecta, not susceptible because of sickling, inflammatory because of cascade of inflammatory processes and neuropathic due to persistent firing or black supply of blood to injured nerves. Now, without getting in too much into details, I just wanna refresh your memory how we perceive the pain. As you remember, there's a four component to it from nociceptor or nociception, which is the point of recognizing the pain. We're going through transduction, which painful stimuli getting transmitted to electrical signal and get transmitted into a dorsal cord of the spinal cord. From there, transmit it transmitted up into the CNS and gets into the thalamus and subsequently to somatosensory cortex. So there is a transduction, there's a transmission, there is a perception of pain in a higher level of uh, our CNS system, as I mentioned, orally somatosensory cortex. And of course, there's a modulation. Our body is trying to model it and try to make us more comfortable with a variety of painful conditions. Because of the pathway, we know that everything starts. Now, periphery, periphery, uh, spinal cord, dorsal horn, and there is a midbrain and there is a um, brain itself. We can target or tailor particular analgesics or commonly class of analgesics that we use in our emergency department based on a part of the pain path we wanted to interfere. And as on this particular slides, we can see we can utilize opioids and NSAIDs and local anesthetics at the point of entry, at the site of nociception. Any type of transmission through the nerve system will probably be better taken care of by local anesthetics or ketamine. And this goes on and on and on. So we understand the type of pain, we understand the four components of pain pathways, and now we can sort of tailor the analgesic depending on what pain pathway we're in. Pain assessment, very important. The variety of classifications, and the simple thing is we can ask the patient, are you hurting, and we're waiting for the response. The very sort of simplistic way of looking at it is a PQRSTU mnemonic. P stands for provocative, what makes pain worse, and palliative factors, what makes pain better. Q stands for quality. Just ask the patient to describe the quality, reaping, dull, sharp, tearing, just unpleasant sensation. And quantity in a sense, just ask the patient, how bad is the pain? We can ask patient which particular part of the body pain is located to, and whether or not there's some radiation component exists. We can ask patient again about severity, just tell us how bad is the pain, or we can ask them to compare whether or not they had the prior experiences in the past. We can obviously talk about severity based on using pain scales, which I'm going to talk in a second. We can talk, ask the patient about the timing, when did the pain start? Is it constant? Is it intermittent? It lives with you all the time. And treatment, ask patient what have they been taking or anything at all. And the last part is, which is my favorite, ask the patient, why do you think you have any pain? It seems trivial. By all means, sometimes you'll be surprised with the answer to it. So remember mnemonic, P-Q-R-S-T-U. Now, when it comes to severity of pain, we're all comfortable and familiar with these pain scales, whether not it's a numerical rating scale or visual analog scale or faces for pediatric patients, and list goes on. You know, we have pain scales for neonates, and infant, and we have pain scales for cognitive impaired adults. We do have pain scales. Just to understand the limitation is, remember, they're giving you a specific point in time without really, really focusing on the quality of pain. If you trend them over time, they become very useful. But just as a caution, a single numeric value of face value or whatever values you're using to it, may be not as important as the qualitative approach to pain. What I mean by qualitative is that everything we do when it comes to pain management, we're trying to improve always or restore frequently a functional impairment of a patient in pain. And my simple way of looking at it, if patient comes in in a gurney and you're able to sit him up you've succeeded. If patient comes in sitting in a wheelchair and you're able to stand them up, you succeeded. If patient walks barely into your emergency department and you're able to fix them and they're going home with a hell head high, you succeeded. Remember, functional improvement, and because of it, assessment of pain should be based on need of analgesic to improve painful status, specifically gearing towards functional. Improvement, ask patients whether well, not there is more pain and ask patients, are they able to move better? And if they say yes, you succeeded. Second point I wanna bring up when it comes to overall ADP pain management is a necessity to engage patient in shared decision-making about painful syndrome, overall trajectory or natural trajectory of the painful syndrome. Remember zero pain is not the goal functional improvement is the goal. So tell the patients, you'll do everything in your power to alleviate the pain, but just don't give them false hopes that you can decrease the pain to zero. It frequently doesn't happen. Tell them what medication you're gonna be giving them in DD and at discharge. And please mention potential adverse effect for short-term and long-term use of medications you're gonna be providing to your patients. And before I get into details, just remind you what type of pain we're dealing on a daily basis In our emergency department, we're talking about acute pain, abdominal pain, chest pain, flank pain, traumatic musculoskeletal pain, non-traumatic musculoskeletal pain. We're dealing with the polytrauma patients. We're dealing with some cutaneous painful syndromes, such as burns, lacerations, cellulitis. We're dealing with the vascular ischemic painful syndromes, right, gangrene, aortic dissection for that example, multitude of headaches. We're dealing with dental pains when it comes to acute presentations. Chronic pain, mentioned earlier, it's a vasoclusive crisis of sickle cell disease. We're dealing with the patient with a cancer pain or occasionally with a chronic connective tissue disorder pain that gets worse. And lastly, neuropathic pain, diabetic neuropathy, post neuralgia, acute herpetic neuralgia, lumbar radiculopathy. These are the scope of pain we deal in. And once again, we're all amazing at what we do. I just want to refine a little approach how we do this and what we can do in our emergency department. I'm going to start with the first thing first, let's start with the non-pharmacological management of pain. Seems trivial, but it's actually very beneficial. It seems common sense, right? Uh, Ice pack, 10 minutes on, 10 minutes off, either commercially made, or you just get ice from the vending machine, or you get ice from, I don't know, from the street if it's winter. You put in a plug and make sure you apply for the 10 minutes on and 10 minutes off to prevent uh, frostbite. Similarly. This particular aspect works very well in the first 12 to 24 hours in a patient with acute musculoskeletal and soft tissue injuries. 12 to 24 hours post-injury heating pads work very well. Heating pad works very well for musculoskeletal painful syndromes. Immobilization, we know that. Problem with the bones, so dislocation, fractures, or joint pathology, immobilize bone joint above and below, and you will serve a great deal of happiness to a patient by just simply immobilizing it. And just recently, virtual reality is becoming very popular in pediatric emergency department, and frankly in adults, which results in decrease in anxiety, anger, and pain, and music. What can be better than music, right? Therapeutic listening, or musical diversion greatly help patients in DD. even though you tell me, you know what, it's very loud, it's nearly impossible. It is possible. I'm not asking you to blast the music across the OEDs, but maybe we can do patient-specific music. Everybody at this point might have some sort of technical device a portable device, they can just listen to the music. So advise them to use music and they'll see the difference in pain. Now, let's look at pharmacological management. And I'm gonna start with opioids. 5,000 years worth history. We know they're effective. We know they're reversible. And we know they do the trick. We know opioids work for majority of acute pain we see in our emergency department. What I wanted to remind you is that the key concept or key premise of successful opioid therapies in DD is titration. Regardless of what dosing regimen you choose, whether or not you choose weight-based dosing or fixed dosing, titration is the key. Utilize proper agent and make sure you approach the patient in a pre-specified short period of time to reassess their pain. And should they require more, titrate. Remember, pure mu-receptor agonists such as morphine, fentanyl, or hydromorphone, they lack analgesic ceiling, which means you can titrate the dosing up until two things happen. Pain becomes tolerable or acceptable, or side effect becomes intolerable, and you will need to stop. Commonly used opioids, at least in a place that I practice and in all western hemisphere are morphine, hydromorphine, and fentanyl. Second part when I brought up is when we choose an opioid, we should focus on euphorogenic potential of opioid and consequently ability of an opioid drug to cause addiction. And if you ask my opinion, and based on this, if we put a balance of analgesic efficacy and potential to cause euphoria and consequently addiction. I think morphine sulfate given parenterally or morphine sulfate given orally is the opioid of choice in our emergency department. Mm-hmm. Lastly, when it comes to opioids, should you have difficulties in timely establishment of vascular accesses or the simply unavailable, don't forget about the skin, which is the largest organ in the body. Use opioids subcutaneously. Do not use intramuscular. but use skin as your vehicle of delivering this medication to a patient. Use intranasal route, use nebulizer route, and please, if you can consider utilizing buccal or orally uh, absorbable preparation of opioids such as fentanyl lollipops. Let's talk about non-steroidal anti-inflammatory agents. We all remember there are anti-inflammatory agents, anti and analgesics. One thing I want to remind some of you, or if you haven't heard about this, I'll be more happy to bring this up to your attention, is that NSAIDs as a class have or follow the pattern of analgesic sealing effect. It means it's a pharmacological phenomenon that entails or implies, after reaching certain dosing threshold, any future increase in the dose will not result in additional analgesia. And this is important to consider because analgesic sealing dose of camel use NSAIDs across the globe are significantly lower than full anti-inflammatory dosing of this medication. And as we know, larger dose of NSAIDs in longer duration of therapies more potential for adverse effects. So based on analgesic ceiling, the dosing for ibuprofen is 400 milligram per dose, for naproxen, or Noprexen, 220, for ketorolac, given orally parenterally, 10, and for diclofenac, given orally parenterally, is 50 per dose. Again, these are the analgesic ceiling um, dose, pain dose. I'm not talking about the feverish dose or antiparatic dose, I should say, or anti-inflammatory dosing regimens. Another option, just remember, topical NSAIDs, in case if they're affordable, of course, are wonderful type of medication, specifically geared towards patients presented with variety of acute musculoskeletal skeletal pathology, such as sprains, strains, uh, bruises, contusions, and such. And data clearly showed that their use for this type of indications supersede the ones that we use NSAIDs for uh, systemic use, such as, you know, orally giving ketorolac or ibuprofen. Uh, ketamine, over the past 15 years, this medication took the market in the analgesia by the great force. And data clearly showed that ketamine given in sub dissociative, also called analgesic, also called low-dosing regimens of 0.1 to 0.3 mg per kilo given intravenously, seemed to be working magic when it's given as a adjunct to opioids in a pre-hospital arena or in pediatric and adult emergency department, or as a single agent. So main route of ketamine administration for pain is intravenous dose, which can be given either weight-based or fixed. Should you have difficulty establishing timely accesses intranasal route is favorable. You can consider utilizing subcutaneous route. And just recently you can consider utilizing nebulizer route as well. Furthermore, in subset of patients who may benefit greatly from ketamine analgesia after initial loading dose, you may consider putting them on continuous ketamine infusion. Based on available research and my own research, the rate limiting factor to broad or widespread use of ketamine analgesia in the EDs, probably across the globe, is a frequently developed rate of moderate bothersomeness, adverse effect, psycho-perceptual in nature, mainly feeling unreality or dizziness. And there are several things you can do. My favorite thing is it's pre-ketamine coaching. You can talk to a patient and tell them what exactly going to happen. They will have this interesting and slightly out-of-body experience, which is transient and easily reversible on its own. But if you want to add something else to it is, instead of giving ketamine as an intravenous push dose, consider utilizing short-term infusion over 15 to 20 minutes at 0.1 to 0.3 mg per kilo, giving as a slurry over 10 to 15 minutes. Analgesic efficacy remains the same, but rate of adverse effect can be decreased up to 40%. Local anesthetics. For the most countries, is a problem mainstay when it comes to pain management. There is no pathology that local anesthetics pretty much cannot cure. And we know we're very comfortable with the topical and lo- uh, local anesthetics. We're very comfortable with local anesthetic for digital block anal- anesthesia and analgesia, right? alter guided nerve blocks become a mainstay in patients with presenting to the deal with acute mollusculoskeletal injuries, specifically bone fractures right? We can use um, local anesthetic for trigger point injection. We can use local anesthetics for paracervical spinal injection. And recently, data shows that in DD we can use sphenopalatine ganglion block for patient with a headache using local anesthetic. So as you can see, myriad, myriad of presentations of painful syndrome to local anesthetic can be very useful too. Just remember, try to remember the maximum allowable dose of local anesthetic, given as a single entity in combination with epinephrine. And remember, they have a narratively narrow therapeutic index, so potential for cardiovascular and neurologic adverse effect are real. Few words on systemic local anesthetics. Lidocaine, cardiac lidocaine or preservative free lidocaine at a dosing in regimen one to 1.5 mg per kilo, given over 10 to 15 minutes, was found to be very effective in patients presenting to the ED with acute renal colic, uh, several presentation of abdominal pain, and even back pain. However, data was limited to small randomized controlled trials or even case reports. And we need more robust studies, specifically looking at patients who are older than 65 years of age and patients who have cardiac comorbidities. But it's a still viable option, especially in a situation when you either don't have opioids on NSAIDs or you, patients cannot tolerate any of the above mentioned drugs. Antidopaminergics, specifically class of medication, including antipsychotics, first generation, that are frequently used in our nursing department primarily for nausea and vomiting, intractable nausea and vomiting. But to expand more on it, they can be used for intractable headache, whether it's a migraine headache or tension headache, or occasionally secondary type of headaches. Can use for acute abdominal pain, acute and chronic abdominal pain, mostly chronic abdominal pain, including gastroparesis. And recently, particularly in the setting of Haldol or haloperidol, cannabis hyperemesis syndrome was found to be easily fixable or easily offsetable by using haloperidol. Androperidol can be effectively used for intractable nausea and vomiting and magnitude of headaches. Paracetamol probably one of the most commonly used analgesic antipyretic on the market, available in oral, parental, and rectal form, enough for the fact it's frequently used for the mild to moderate pain as a single entity, and it's very frequently used as an adjunct to opioid, and non opioid analgesia given parenterally. Data supporting use of intravenous paracetamol, specifically getting towards patient presented to the deal with acute uh, flank pain related to renal colic, in data that come from Middle East and Turkey showed Iran and Turkey showed comparable and a couple of studies showed, frankly, superior analgesic efficacy of intravenous paracetamol to morphine. Data showed that paracetamol can be used as an adjunct to ultrasound guided nerve block or opioids in acute musculoskeletal injuries and abdominal pain. Most recent data, however, showed analgesic inferiority of intravenous paracetamol in comparison to opioids, but it's a very good adjunct modality, and especially if we're talking about the cost savings across the globe. In the United States, this medication is practically unaffordable, despite the fact that it becomes generic. It's still very expensive. Magnesium is frequently used in the ED for a multitude of painful syndromes, particularly the one that I like is uh, migraine headache as a second or third-tier medication. Renal colic, some studies show that magnesium can be added to opioid to so use a single agent. When you add it to opioids, it actually works better. And chronic back pain of magnesium as an NMDA blocking agent can actually help with chronic pain specifically related to uh, hyperalgesia and central sensitization. Classic dosing, one gram IV infusion. Most recent systematic review, unfortunately, on the role of. Magnesium in patient renal colic showed modest, at most effect. Similarly, modest effect in post-operative pain, chronic pain, headache, and chronic fibromyalgia. We need more data, but it's a valuable option. So use it if you can. Few more things when it comes to non-invasive route of administration. Inhaled noza pentrox, is made in Australia. Is very useful medication to be as a single as an adjunct to non opiate analgesia for managing primarily variety of my acute musculoskeletal pain. It's very quick, takes care of pain in the first three, five or 10, 15 minutes. So if there's a chance to use it, consider using it. And I'm gonna wrap it up the analgesic armamentarium of ED analgesia by bringing up nitrous oxide, which is highly recommended to be used in variety of acute and acute and chronic painful presentations in DD, particularly in children related to musculoskeletal pathology. Remember? nitrous oxide in concentration 50-50, 50% 50 of nitrous oxide and 50% of oxygen can be used pretty much without the monitor, higher, requires some sort of monitoring, and you can always combine nitrous oxide in a spirit of CERTA concept with opioid, non-opioid, and local anesthetic as a part of the regional block. And here you are, here we are, I should say, amazing EM algiatrists across the globe, We have a phenomenal, analgesic treasure chest that we can utilize to provide patient-specific, pain-syndrome-targeted pain pain approach by using safe and effective modalities. And all this approach that we use in our emergency department is evidentially based. So we should go out there and take care of our patients. But just one more thing, which is very, very important. I'm practicing in the western hemispheres and every single medication I mentioned to you, it is available to me. With few exception of some financial constraints and cost acquisition, we can use all of them, but not everybody is the same. they are different parts of the world that may not be able to acquire all the analgesic I've mentioned in my presentation. So we need to be smart. We want to help our patients, but we need to base our ability to help patients based on what's available to us and whether or not it's actually cost-effective to us. And I'm bringing up world map and just show you what in blue is majority of countries assess pretty much everything I mentioned to you. Whether it may be 75 to 90% of analgesic I mentioned, those uh, circled in blue they have. African continent, however, may not have every single medication or analgesic available for them. And when they need to, because they've managed to perfect the ED analgesia and beyond ED analgesia with what they have. And based on my own research and based what I came across to it, combination of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications, opioids, specifically oral morphine, an oral opioid, and paracetamol given orally and parenterally will be sufficient enough to offset and take care of majority of nodal patients in pain, regardless of what they're coming with. And if things get better and the things are really, really available and mostly affordable, we can add local anesthetic to it, ketamine and nitrous oxide. And on this note, I want to thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to be here today and give you a brief overview of ED, analgesic availability, and what we can do to help our patients in pain. Thank you very much.
0: Sergey, thank you so much for that absolutely wonderful, wonderful talk. Thank you very, very much. And just to reiterate again, uh, users uh, of St. Mungo's can watch the video in its entirety on the special St. Mungo's page at continuous.com forward slash LP forward slash St Mungo's now Sergey, just before we go I wanted to ask you one last question which we ask everyone that contributes to St Mungo's so if I could bring you back on a time machine to meet your junior self starting your career just leaving university what one piece of advice would you give your junior self with all the experience that you've gained so far in your career
1: so I tell myself it's a wonderful question you know what I would do I would just say that the juice is worth the squeeze. Meaning, it's going to get harder, it's going to get very, very hard to the point you may even contemplate what have I got myself into it? Am I in the right path? Am I in the right specialty? But the ultimate reward of being the best EM clinician one can be is priceless. So, the juice is worth the squeeze.
0: Love it. Thank you very, very much for joining me today. My, My pleasure. So many, many thanks again to Sergei Mutov for that fantastic talk, as well as the wonderful Pearls of Wisdom. Now, remember, for the next seven days following the release of this podcast, you'll be able to watch the lecture in its entirety on a special St. Mungo's page on Continuous at www.continulus.com. That's continulu com forward slash L-P forward slash St Mungo's all one word. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. Until next time, please take care.